welcome to both of you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on, <laughs> on, on Retconning Weekly. Um, so, David, I want to actually start with you because uh, you were uh, pretty into a language called Elm. Adam, yeah. have you ever heard of Elm? Not the male. Uh, I think we actually talked to... about it on the show at some point. We talked about Elm here. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And I, I wasn't Elm the here. language. Speak of the deep cuts. Yeah, no, I think so. Elm, not the not, not the mail reader. No, 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 I, not the mailer. Because I always think of the mail reader that had a two gigabyte limit that forced me to, to go to mutt when my mail <laughs> got larger than two gigabytes. Got that that thirty first bet. The um so but Elm so Dave, you were super in Elm and you've got a great story about something you had developed for Elm based yeah. on a new feature of the language. Yeah, and can you describe that a little bit because I yeah I well it was just a talk that I they that I had. Uh signed up to give at OzCon, the Oz O'Reilly conference, the uh, open source conference, uh, which I'm not sure if they do anymore, but uh, in 2016, and uh, it was about this feature of, of the language. So Elm was, is, a, is or was, it's a, uh, there's kind of a debate about whether the fact that there hasn't been a commit in two years means it's dead or not. But uh, <laughs> it, they, it's a functional language for for writing web UIs, basically. So you know, you would think of your UI as a pure function of the state of the program, and um, it had this neat feature called signals, which was a kind of a stream of data, a value that would change over time. So like the mouse position would be a signal where it has a value at any given one time, but you can also um, you know accumulate over the the a series of values, and you would treat it like you would accumulate over a list of things, you know, with a fold. So it was this very elegant functional programming abstraction applied to UI. And it was, I think, very appealing to people who were into functional programming. And so I, yeah, I, I wrote this whole talk just kind of explaining it. And it was a neat little intro to functional programming uh, framed around this feature. And then the talk was going to be you know, mid-May. And then May 10th, there was a blog post called A Farewell to Functional Reactive Programming, where they were getting rid of signals uh, from the language. Um, so I, that was, that was really exciting. I had to rewrite my talk in a week. Mostly I just kind of crammed it into the middle 30 minutes and gave five minutes at the beginning and end about how, uh, they were removing this, but it's still kind of like that, you know, it hasn't changed that much. They more, it's more than getting rid of the name and had to kind of explain it. But I learned that, uh, if you're going to give a talk on something, you better watch the mailing list for that thing. So ridiculous at so many different levels. And first of all, how often, I mean, I feel like languages are generally, for a good reason, like careful about ripping out abstraction. Like when you introduce abstraction, like people are going to build software on it and they may even write talks around the software they built on it. And you can't really be casual about ripping that out. Uh, but they're like, no, it's dead. Farewell. Farewell to the thing you're about to give a talk on. How old was it? Couldn't have been that old. When you um, it? it was a couple of years old, probably. But, you know, it was a, it started out as like a kind of a research project, I think, by the creator, Evan Splitsky. And uh, I just posted the the talk and the post in, announcing removing the feature in the uh, in the chat. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was still evolving pretty a lot at that time. It, this was early. This was not the time we are now. This was 2016. Things were a little bit more fluid in uh, web uh, in web world, where you know TypeScript hadn't really become dominant. So I think the value proposition of these non-JS compiled to JS languages was was uh, stronger than it is now, where you know you have to have a really strong value proposition in order to justify deviating from the thing that's now, you know, the mainstream choice, which is TypeScript and is really good. 
the days of CoffeeScript and many, yeah. many, many other <laughs> uh, interesting things. <laughs> yeah, I think even by 2016, CoffeeScript was already kind of kind of on the way out, and it was like, okay, there's TypeScript, Flow, Elm. We're still compiling he, he, JavaScript, but we're not doing this weird uh, pseudo Ruby thing. Is Stephen O'Grady paying either of you a bounty to mention CoffeeScript here? Out of curiosity, <laughs> I mean, it would be. Because uh, I was a uh, a copy script malcontent. Because <laughs> I think unlike Elm, I, I love. I think Elm is really interesting because it was and TypeScript is terrific. I mean, I think TypeScript actually correct. I think TypeScript is like the it is almost more important than JavaScript in terms of like TypeScript. The the am I understating the importance? It feels like TypeScript is a very important development. Am I understating that? Yeah, I I don't know how it. I mean, I think if, if you look at the you know language rankings on GitHub and stuff, you'll you'll see it's it's quite high. I'm not sure if it's quite reaching JavaScript yet, but it, it's a very significant amount of new web app development. Definitely is TypeScript rather than JavaScript. It definitely bridges an important gap because it's like we had a lot of compiled to JavaScript languages in, in many different ways. So you know things like Elm that were grouped more to frameworks. You had things like PureScript, which were more functional, but definitely harder to sort of get started with. You had things that were much looser, like CoffeeScript. Um, and then, you know, you just had straight uh, JavaScript compilation of like, here, let me take uh, e to f or what, five to six, th then became Babel to, you know, make this like language translation as the language was evolving, you know, so, so heavily from the sort of ES5 to whatever the new generation was. Um, so the language was really evolving. The type world <laughs> was kind of slow, but when TypeScript came together, it was a really interesting alternative to a lot of these things. And then you also had Flow from Facebook, which they just right. never really got their, um, they never put as much effort into it because Facebook meta has always been, you know, very internally like this is for us and you can use it, but it's our tool <laughs> and we'll, we'll sort of do what we want with it. So, um, yeah. And at this point they basically said as much that, you know, development is going to be internally focused on Facebook's needs and they're not really doing open source stuff with it anymore. With flow. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd forgotten about flow actually. Uh, yeah, for and a while we... they were looked like they were, it could go either way. Um, yeah. between TypeScript it, 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 in terms of flow or TypeScript. Yeah. 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 You know what's funny is that uh, Adam, Dave, and I were in, um, in in Aarhus with Lars Bach when Microsoft was announcing TypeScript in 2012. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. And there was a really interesting, and we were, so Lars Bach did the, the V8 VM at Google. And so Dave and I were presenting all the work that we had done to Lars and, and Casper Lund and kind of all the debugging work. And the Microsoft guy, uh, Steve Luco, was also coming over there to to have like a closed door session with that we were kind of like literally a fly on the wall for. Like they kind of didn't ask us to leave, and we didn't volunteer to leave. So we're just like we're just gonna stick around and watch. And they were just going at it. They were like two cats in a bag. Um, <laughs> it because it, it, it's kind of like the you know like neither wanted to cede anything to the other. It's like Lars, like, like why would you do any of this? And I'm like I know why you do it. It's like this seems really. Seems extraordinarily valuable, um, but um, so it was. It was really it was super interesting and a very very important development because it brought real. I mean, Justin, as you were saying, like I don't think CoffeeScript. I mean, it's amazing. It's like CoffeeScript is actually like looser than JavaScript. Like, how do you do that? Um, but the uh, I think that TypeScript was really bringing something very important, which is a lot of rigor and type safety. And t like types are nice, <laughs> actually. Yeah. In, in in particular to folks 
um, you know, with a, col a certain collection of values, building a certain type of software. Like, uh, I think there are lots of folks for whom TypeScript might be overly constraining, like the people who choose untyped languages for the rest of the world. But, um, you know, certainly, like, if you if you believe in types and think that types are good on the server, like you might think that they're type they're pretty useful on the client as well. Well, you got to keep in mind too that like in the early two thousands, JavaScript was a very different language than it was today. You know, it's like really in the twenty tens when, especially when Rails was really at it at its meteoric rise, people were using a lot of Ruby and are like, okay, this makes sense. I can write some really terse syntax and do a lot of stuff and throw a lot of code out in the world. And I mean, CoffeeScript really hit that era when JavaScript was like getting out of this very painful stage where it was kind of an awkward, incomplete language. And they're like, okay, we can kind of see it's starting to move, but we want something better. And I mean, the things that a lot of people use CoffeeScript for was like, oh, I want arrow functions. <laughs> I just want a, a, a cleaner way to declare a Lambda. And, yeah. you know, small little affordances like that, that as soon as, you know, more, you know, as soon as like TypeScript and others came on the uh, scene and, you know, Babel and other things that let you sort of compile to get these later functions, then CoffeeScript was, was you know, abandoned pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, in terms of those, those early days, so uh, Adam and I were developing a web app effectively in addition to when for this storage appliance we're developing. Um, back in, it was like immediately post Google Maps and it was kind of in the era of Ajax. I'm not sure if the children, children even, Ajax, asynchronous JavaScript and XML. <laughs> yeah, I still call them those. I still, I still call them Ajax calls sometimes. Nice. Oh, nice. That's it. <laughs> That's th th this is like when we, we were debugging a problem and Adam was looking. Sorry. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, thanks. No, feel free. Go ahead. No, no, no. I know. Do you want me to stop? I'll, I'll, no, I'll, I, I'm gonna go, no, go ahead. I'm going to go take a little walk. No, no. I like this. Is I thought it was cute. I did that you're asking like about a trap always instruction. And I'm That's like, right. Yeah. I was, I was, I was like, we we're clearly debugging some AMD 64 code. And which, I mean, I guess it's anachronistic even that I call it that. Uh, and I, I mentioned a TA3 instruction, not a trap three, because on Spark, you had trap always. And I had Spark on the brain. It just, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. So, I, 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 you I, know, like, it, it's Ajax calls. Like you're, you're among friends, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, we, we, we sound like uh, we're, just, we're just venerating you, Adam. That's all we're doing. <laughs> That's right. It is remarkable now that I, I've, been, I've been reading a bit more about History of Sun. And the fact that we didn't get strong-armed into building that front end in like some sort of Java applet, which would have been garbage, but it's sort of remarkable oh, that no one tried to make that happen. Definitely no one tried to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> We were definitely, and we were, the, Justin, this was the era of like, this was like Django and jQuery. And the fact that we were doing things like on the DOM, you would think we were writing it in assembly, like on the DOM directly. It's like, it's just like, I mean, the function calls that you make. I mean, it's not like, yes, on the DOM directly. But the uh, that world was very primitive, Justin, you're mentioning, and we're in a much, much, much more advanced world. And I think it's part of the reason why. I mean, I don't, I don't that when we see the demos that that you all have, and the tooling that you're using is just like jaw dropping. I mean, it is really, really amazing. Yeah, I mean, the tooling in particular is outstanding. Yeah. yeah so I mean, I mean the, yeah. the things that we can do are not that different, but I think it's more just sort of the confidence that we have when we make changes. That we haven't broken something 
is the is really the big difference for me, at least you know in the experience of developing it compared to how it used to be for me. I would say that the like the mature the the engineering maturity of the whole space has really really advanced incredibly rapidly. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to paper over here, but I mean even a few years ago, bundling was still a thing that was hard and cumbersome, and we had a lot of configuration, and we're trying to figure out how you know essentially a software distribution problem of hey you know we have these. Uh, these sort of delivery payload mechanisms that we're using in a way that we weren't in, really intended to be used for, and we're trying to figure out how to optimize this, and you know, just a lot of tooling churn over the years. And I, I think the thing that gets me excited today about the tools that we're using is like it's so simple. It's like I, I can, you know, I can teach someone who is new to programming on a production code base. Like, hey, look at this thing. Oh yeah, here's this configuration. And that wasn't the case, you know, even a few years ago, where it's like, all right, sit down, give me the rest of your afternoon, and I'll explain what this Webpack config does. And, and this is no shade on Webpack. It was like doing very important things. But I think just talking about the overall maturity of the tooling, it's, it's changed a lot. So could you just talk a little bit more about, what, about that bundling problem? Because I feel like this is, this is a part of the space that I never really understood when it was at its height. And I guess now that it's been obviated, it's a relief and I never have to go understand. But I think, like, what was the, the, the kind of the bundling challenge and problem and how has that been solved with the tooling? Yeah, I mean, so JavaScript, uh, single-threaded, you know, has an event loop. So you're parsing top to bottom, sort of executing as you go. Uh, and it's like putting asynchronous work on the event loop to sort of be popped off and ran over time. And the big thing is, uh, you know, in the early days when you're like building something with jQuery, you've got, you know, one file, one JavaScript file that you're including, you, you know, you're making a call and like including all of jQuery, and then you've just got this big one blob. Well, you know, developing software and, and big blobs is, is not easy. I mean, you know, maybe you might like working on a 20,000 line uh, C file, but it's not a it's not a fun time for everybody for sure. Right. Just, a, just to be clear, I did not that's, that's, pay that's, Justin that's, to say that. Very very specific. <laughs> that felt extremely specific. Hey, I, you know, not throwing shade at anybody. I, I mean, Adam uh, is seriously DMing you, like getting a WC minus L on Detroit.c. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, just the idea that we needed modularity, and so. Pretty quickly, things like, uh, and this is especially true as, as Node was coming on the scene, CommonJS came about, and we're like, okay, well, we have these modules, and we need to figure out these relatively hard problems of as soon as you have dependencies and you have modules, then, you know, they have, like, there's a dependency chain here. There's a tree structure in your, in your module graph, and you have to figure out, you know, how to organize those. And, and you know, really hard problems, like, Okay, when my client starts, when they start executing, there are you know maybe these twenty modules that they need to render something on the page. But we have two hundred other modules with other functionality that they will need as they browse the experience, but they don't need right now. And if we delivered all of this up front, it's going to reduce the performance. And you know you have all of these things to sort of think about. It's like how do we break down the code? How do we ship only what needs to run? Uh, and, you know, many other problems. Crespo, definitely feel free to hop in here. But that is inherently, like, it's a compiler's problem, you know? It's it's non-trivial. And then just yeah. figuring out things like, you know, what dependencies do we have? What are, and Because you have to think, you also, 
may depend on you know some CSS or some other asset, some web fonts or you know whatever. You could have a lot of dependencies, and uh, that's just a non non trivial problem, especially when you consider that you know. When JavaScript was designed, it wasn't designed with like modules in mind. It's just like, hey, here's this like block of code. Execute this, please. Um, yeah, I th that's a great account of of what happened. I, the the only thing I would add is that what happens over time, you know, the the complexity of the tooling is a consequence of their they're not being consensus about what we need to do. There, like, you know, if you yeah. think about just like the number of web apps that there are tens of thousands, millions, and, you know, everybody was working on kind of their own custom configuration of, of these bundler tools because there wasn't a consensus on what a web app would need. And you really need to go through that process of trying all these things before the um, consensus, you know, core functionality can really shake out. And then that enables these like really elegant tools like Vite, which is what we use to, to uh, build the console in local dev and also in production. It's a our config file for that's like a hundred lines or something, and most of that, a lot of that, is just like little utility functions that we've written. And so, are you saying Veep, Veet, or Veet? Oh yeah, I should spell it. It's a, it's a, it's a the pronunciation is French. It's a V I T E. V oh, as in oh, fast. Oh, yeah. Yes. Was, yeah. Right. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Well, oh, it looks like Vite. So, but yeah, it's pronounced Veet. Um, and it uses so you know, and it uses other tools under the hood. It's you know, kind of a fancy wrapper for ES build and um, roll up, uh, but. The fact that there's sort of consensus on how web apps work means that our config file can be very small because we don't actually have to make all these choices because that's just the exactly. way, because the way that they do it by default is actually exactly what we want. And so you don't have to do all this really fiddly um, configuration. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I think about when I, when I think about the maturity of the tooling. It's about you know, this process of shaking out uh, what, what is actually needed and, and what's not. Well, in getting consensus, I think it's a really interesting point about getting consensus about what the problems are and then getting consensus that like, okay, these elements of the foundation are the, the kind of the right elements. Um, I mean, this is, I'm also going to kind of show my vintage here. Um, browser compatibility was such a big deal back in the day. And it feels like, it, 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 I mean, it, obviously the number of browsers has been greatly reduced, which helps. Uh, but it feels like that's just, is, am I wrong that that's not as much of a problem as it was? I mean, it feels like things... For compatibility, basically not a problem anymore. Yeah, that's amazing. It's great. Which, 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 but it's another one of these things where like, we need consensus on what that substrate was. So we I mean, stop having the browser I, compatibility. I think people will probably say, wait a second, wait a second. For many people, not a problem. There definitely are people who are, who are writing internal apps for companies that, are, that probably still have people on IE, though. You know, if Microsoft says stop using IE, then hopefully there aren't very many companies like using you know, IE8 to, to run their internal apps, except when their internal apps require IE8 because they won't run any, any other browser. But Well, IE is definitely EOL, so don't yeah. use IE, please. Don't use IE. I mean, this is one of those things, though. It is worth noting that there are still browser compatibility issues. Um, so it's like Opera is a very popular browser in certain parts of the world. So it like depends on your audience. Um, right. So yeah, uh, by and large, you can hit uh, a lot of the same groups with not doing a whole lot of work. This is good and bad, though, because mostly this is the rise of Chromium, and it's just like eating the world, um, which I feel conflicted about. But yeah, yeah so me point in the chat real yeah. quick about um, you know it's not necessarily consensus, but I would say that each tool in the space represents a consensus, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a global consensus, but you have this sort of convergence and you have these, this plurality of, of uh, 
consensus is. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you got like at least some uh, agreement on abstractions that are productive for some a, a significant enough subset to get to start getting some commonality where you can know that like, okay, I can go build this next level of tooling and know that I don't have to solve like for 18 different ways of doing it beneath me. I mean, I do think that that's, that's, that's important. I mean, you want to, and there's always a tension with that. And I, Justin, maybe this is what you're getting at with your kind of own complicated feelings about Chromium that like, we also like, we don't necessarily want monocultures and Chromium probably is creating a monoculture there. I don't know. Could you elaborate on some of your, your conflicted feelings? Yeah. I mean, you know, to, in one hand, Chromium is just amazing engineering. You really have to hand it to them. Uh, like V8, uh, the JavaScript execution engine that, that, that ships with Chromium, is just mind-bogglingly good. Like, they've done so much work there. And then, you know, to the whole execution engine, it, like, it's great. Uh, and there's a proliferation of tools, you know, if you think about Electron. So Electron sort of built off of the legacy of uh, Chromium. Electron spun out of the Atom team, Atom editor. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, power that's come with that. But at the same time, this monoculture is, is a challenge. It's hard. So, for example, uh, this is a, a minor gripe, but the, the Chrome team is sort of like, uh, pushing this uh, browser extension manifest v3 thing that just infuriates me to no end that you know they're trying to make this uh, argument about performance and security that I can only half believe because the project itself is of course blocked or backed by by Google. So it's like, hey, yeah, we make money on advertisers. We're going to make technical decisions that makes it harder to build ad blockers. Um, you know, I don't know, just just stuff like that. It's like, you know, as with ever the world, it's less the the technical stuff itself and more the the messy reality of life. There's politics. There's money on the line, and I, I don't know. Interesting, and 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 but fortunately, it's all open source. I, mean, I do feel that this is. I mean, I think ultimately this is the the legacy of Firefox and Mozilla was to get us to a world in which our browsers are broadly open source. Uh, I assume that that's still true. That's still true. Is that not true? I mean, yeah, it's broadly true, but but you're talking about very, very, very complex engineering systems, right? And, yeah, and it takes right, a right. ton of capital. So the thing is, these things being open source benefits the corporations by, you know giving people the opportunity to come contribute, but they're so capital intensive to develop them and, and to provide all the features and, you know, not to, I mean, I like JavaScript, the language, but it's continuing to evolve very quickly and all the browsers have to keep up with that and CSS is evolving and like all these things are happening and it's making these really complex environments. You know, we expect a lot out of the web and we're continuing to expect more. And that does not make this an easier engineering effort. So really, if you don't have a massive amount of capital to deploy to these things, you're not going to be able to compete in any real way. Um, and, and I think that that really gets around this whole notion of like, oh, yeah, open source is going to save us. And it's like in this case, right. it, I don't think it's going to. Well, it's a real tension, right, between that kind of the consensus that you need to build the tooling that you want to advance it and then avoiding that that monoculture, especially when you've got this kind of questionable uh, potentially perverse incentive around blocking ads, for example, um, and kind of blocking ad blocking. Um, 
So yeah, that's that seems like a. I, so, and you mentioned VA, Justin. I mean, I actually think that, that this may be a bit of a, a hot take or a controversial opinion. I think V8, I think, was an extremely important software project because I think there's a certain degree that people had given up on the performance of JavaScript. And V8 showed folks that it could actually be high-performing. And I think it it redefined what's possible. So I, I actually think V8 should get an ACM System Software Award. Adam, put me down. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I think that's a great take. I think not because not only is that applicable to uh, to JavaScript, but I think people took that lesson and brought it to other languages. I mean, directly, you look at sure. Hack and PHP. That that was that was born from the observation from you know in part Keith's observation that they could do the same thing as V8 was doing, and I think that's been carried other places. So I, I think it took uh, it, it helped uh, you know virtual machines of that sort over a very significant hump that had that had sort of slowed the proliferation and let people see what they could be. Totally. Very, very important project. And uh, and as cast a very long shadow. So in, uh, so Justin, then what, what is your take? Because so I think the other thing that it's just, I, I mean, I think Adam, I can speak for both of us, has blown us away is, David, your use of Playwright has just been amazing. That thing is crazy. Is that as good as it looks? I mean, it looks amazing. Yeah, it's it's really great. I mean, I've definitely tried various end-to-end um, -end testing tools. I I'll, I should say what Playwright is uh, in answering this. Um, so Playwright is a tool from Microsoft that lets you do browser testing. So you you know you script the browser to essentially do what um, what you would do when you click around the site. You know, every time you you make a PR, you merge domain, you want to you you have these things in mind are sort of like what are the key flows that I want to make sure that they haven't broken and as you know pretty early on in the web console project I realized like okay I definitely need to just write tests for those things instead of going and clicking around myself um, and these kind of tools have a have a pretty long history I mean when I started I started as a web dev in 2012 and I think we had something that was you know selenium based at that point right that was, was kind of yeah, similar like... the basic idea is really similar uh, but somehow, I don't know if it's like you were you know, we were talking about the browsers being standardized and not, uh, you know, maybe the problem of, of making these things reliable is uh, um, not as hard anymore. Um, not to discount, I'm sure, whatever is the immense engineering effort to, to make these things good. But I just we just find that these tests are not not that flaky. Um, they, uh, you know, figuring out how to select things is, is was originally was really tough like you would have css classes everywhere and you would just be selecting things by by you know the button class or like something that wasn't really relevant to, to what it was on the page and um now there's different conventions around that that i think make it a little bit more um reliable but just overall the experience of writing these tests is not that of like a massive slog it really it, it's not very hard once you get used to it and we have um I don't know, 60 or 70 or something of these in the web console. And they are actually our primary tests. We have unit tests for things that are, you know, more pure functions like helpers and stuff. But um, for the most part, these full end-to-end -end tests in the browser running in Firefox, Chrome, Safari, like these, those are our primary tests for the console. And they give us quite a bit of confidence that we are not messing things up when we, uh, when we make a change. Did I ever tell you all the story of how I got involved in open source for the first time? <laughs> Oh. It's, in my, it's, uh, it's related. So I was working for this company called Adtran. Uh, they are sort of a Cisco competitor, make switches and routers, uh, and many other things. Uh, I'm sort of minimizing their business there. But uh, so we were using this uh, Python uh, testing framework, uh, automated testing framework, uh, 
called Robot Framework. Uh, it was by a, a Finnish developer. I think he'd done it. He'd like developed it for his PhD, but we were using that to drive the console to, you know, we'd have a, a, a rack of like switches and routers or whatever in different configurations and, you know, drive it, like drive a BGP test or something. Uh, but we also wanted to test the web UI for this. So there was a Selenium binding uh, for Robot Framework and it did not work as well as I'd wanted and the previous developer had sort of abandoned the project. So I got involved in maintaining a Selenium binding for this Python uh, testing framework. And that was my first major contribution to open source. I, I helped maintain that for like a year. Uh, yeah, so it comes full circle. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That, that was your, your entree into it was around, uh, it was when this, this has historically been one of these things that has been just rocky is how do you actually automate testing of a user interface of, of something that, that is going to ultimately require a, a human being moving a mouse and so on. And because uh, you are mentioning with like Selenium, you do these kind of do it with CSS. And I, I just got to imagine that like you end up with the test itself being brittle or potentially brittle. Was that? Absolutely. Yeah, and um, the convention around that has has changed quite a bit. So um, I think this is something I learned from a guy named Kent C. Dodds, who is a, uh, I think he mostly teaches uh, web dev online now. He actually worked at PayPal when I was working at PayPal. Um, but it, it, the trick is to use um, what's called the accessible name of things, which is essentially like the text that's on the screen. But for things that don't have displayable text, there's also um, text that a screen reader would show. Um, Oh, so using the um, ARIA role, um, I forgot what ARIA stands for, but essentially it's like the, the type of, of item of element that it is, but it's it's not the same thing as like the tag, uh, the HTML tag. So, you know, you'll select a button with name, you know, next or something. And so essentially what you do is you select by what is visible on screen. So you really just put yourself in the mindset of a user uh, using the page instead of the sort of developer mindset of like, what are the classes that I need to select for? Um, and like, if you need to select a button in a dialogue, you can be like, give me a, the button that says next that is inside of the dialogue, as opposed to the button that says next that it's on this other part of the page. Um, and so by doing that, we can actually really exercise the accessibility of the app as well. I so, was just going to say, that yeah, is really, yeah. You get it for I, it, free um, by, by testing this way. And it makes the tests much less brittle because, you know, you don't have this mystery about like, what am I selecting by? What am I changing? Like when you change the text, you're going to mess up your selector, but that that's not surprising because you know that you changed the text. Whereas, you know, changing CSS classes might be a much more surprising uh, thing for a test to break. Yeah, that is really, that's great. <laughs> I would just yeah. say you've solved this other really thorny, important problem that we, you had Matt Campbell on whatever that was. 15 years ago on the podcast, Adam, I don't know how long we've been doing this. Like That's right, approximately way. that, yeah. All right, so um, this is something near and dear to my heart. The, a little caveat here is definitely these, like using uh, ARIA roles and using accessible names is, is important and it helps part of the validation, but building an accessible web application is a whole nother thing. I mean, that's a, it's a completely different design paradigm. Like how you have to think about how someone navigates through a web UI with a keyboard and a screen reader is is very very different. Uh, so when I joined, I would done some like early work on just like making sure that that experience was good. That's also a very hard thing to validate because it's it's different than saying, oh, do these things have accessible labels? You know, 
that's fine, but through. it doesn't mean right. that you can navigate it well. So we have actually put in some real work into making sure that that is um, a decent experience. I, I would say it's not perfect. We still have a ways to go, but I, I would I definitely emphasize that we've put a lot more work into this than a lot of folks do out of the gate. Um, it has been something that, you know, early on, you know, I've got a Windows machine at home. I use a screen reader just to test it out. You know, I just like want to make sure, hey, can we get around? You know, doing little things like having a, a button that's hidden so when you back tab uh, or tab to the first element, it pops down this button. It's like, would you like to go to the main content? So you don't have to tab through every single menu item, you know, in the header or whatever to get to your VPC configuration or whatever you're trying to get to, you know? Like those kinds of things are important and they take special care. It takes rigor. It takes you know a different mindset. So it's not something that you can ever just get for free. But um, definitely using accessible uh, like area roles and stuff is is helpful for that for sure. Yeah, and something that I love about it is that it, it to me it really just makes the app better for you know sighted users as well. You know, if totally. it doesn't, right. it's it the the structures, the clarity that you that you get in thinking about the structure of your application, and you know, being able to use these patterns um, in the ARIA guidelines about um, what a list box, you know, scrolling picker is supposed to look like, things like that. It really gives you a lot of clarity in, in how these things are just supposed to work uh, for everybody. So it, it it's been great. This is the first project I worked on where we've put this much attention into it. That is I've awesome. Learned, I've learned a ton. So, and another kind of challenge that it, that you both had to deal with is, and I, which I imagine is like not that uncommon in the front end world, where you're trying to build something in the back end is maybe it's extremely common, where like the back end is doesn't yet implement that. In our case, like the back end weighs three thousand pounds, and we hadn't even like pulled the whole thing together uh, until we needed hardware and software to pull all together. So what were some of the challenges there about having to build a console for a thing that didn't yet exist? Because I feel like you, you've taken a bunch of different approaches at kind of different levels to allow you, allow you to, to develop the console in time for the software. Yeah, the, I mean, the main thing was to me was avoiding building things the wrong way because there's, you know, this immense weight of the past <laughs> that like, you know, weighs on you, even though technically you might get to a point where you've gone the wrong way and you want to scrap it, but you, you feel like you can't. Um, so to me, building the wrong thing was always worse than building nothing. So I always erred like very, very strongly on the side of building less, um, and really being confident that it was something that we would need. Um, and, you know, avoiding coupling and things that would, would make it harder to, to rip certain bits out, um, when it turned out that, you know, the, the, the backend went a different way. Um, eventually the backend came, you know, caught up with us and we were able to sort of build at, at basically as fast as we could, uh, you know, more and more pages in the, in the console. But you know, in a web app, there are certain things you need, and you want to get the architecture right. Um, and so that was kind of what we focused on in the in the early time. I mean, when I started, it was March 2021, and I don't I don't think the API was uh, giving us that much to work with until probably the summer or maybe in the fall, around when Justin started. Um, and then we started to have have quite a bit more to work with. And you know, Justin and I ended up doing you know part of part of the solution there was also Justin and I working on the API itself to kind of help it catch up with with what yeah, we did in the console. I was going to say yeah that I mean a big part of it was you just building the API and building the back end uh, <laughs> rather than waiting for it but then there's tons of stuff you also did to separate um, front end development from even having a live back end and that's been incredibly impressive yeah so we um 
this is actually another thing I learned from Kenzie Dodds. So, so this is a lot of shout outs to Kenzie Dodds on this uh, <laughs> episode. Um, using um, a mock API uh, to to avoid having to even run the the real backend um, uh, during development. So I think if you had told me um, to try this, bef bef you know. few years ago, I would have just thought that's just a ridiculous amount of work and you have this enormous risk of um, your mocks deviating from the real thing. That's always always a big problem with mocks. Um, but the the real key to making it work is that um, we have the open API spec uh, from, the AP, from the real API. Uh, and that tells us what our request bodies look like and our response bodies look like. And it even gives us some validation stuff like, you know, this number has to be in this range. By writing tooling that keeps our mock server in conformity with that open API spec, that really, really, that mostly solves the problem. I mean, because mostly what you're, what you are worried about when, you know, in terms of correctness is just like the, the shapes of the uh, requests and responses. So by writing tooling that essentially makes that a problem of, you know, if the API changes, you just get a type error in TypeScript and you fix it. Um, you, you mostly eliminate that problem of, of, of your mocks getting out of date. So we've used that. You know, really extensively. That's that's actually what we do most of our development with, and we just wrote kind of this fake functionality inside of that um, typed wrapper that implements the API in a really minimal way, and and we write most of our our code and test against that. Yeah, that for maybe really cool. maybe yeah. like a technical journey here. So this all starts, you know, at Nexus, our control plane. Uh, so we're using Dropshot, which is a a, a HTTP library or a, a, a sort of a REST API library. Adam, describe this better for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, a HTTP framework for like building simple web servers. There you In go. And, <laughs> and it was one of the first things we built at Oxide. I mean, I, Adam, because I, I think you and Dave did that like. Dave, early. and to be clear, Dave did like 90% of the work. I just, you know, showed up to scoop up, you know, 50% of the glory on it. But, um, <laughs> you know, the one of the key insights that I did bring there was. Um, I really believe in in interface description languages and open API is flawed and broken, but I think it's the the best thing that we have. And um, I, I think the approach that Dropshot takes is using open API as an output. So like you write all the code and then that is true. Whereas a lot of other frameworks, um, it's easier to get divergence between the code and the spec. And here it's as as Justin is alluding to, we we build the server, it outputs open API and we know that that is actually what the server is going to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that was a, that was a bit of a big bet, Adam, in terms of like the, just in the importance of the primacy of open API, despite its flaws was, and I mean, this is a domain that you've got a ton of experience. This is something that you, you had spent a lot of time going into different APIs and how yeah. are these things used? And, and this is something that, I mean, we, that you came in, feeling pretty certain about and it was really it was the right call you know that this is something that has paid a lot of dividends for us yeah it, it it's been great uh I, i'm really glad the way it worked out and um you know stuff like Dropshot is opinionated about how we do pagination where you can have apis where you find five different ways of doing pagination because it's built by yeah. five different people so why not um but some of the stuff that like J justin and david have done where we now get type checking across the, the client-server boundary is just beautiful. I just love it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it has been it, like life-changing as a, as a client dev um, to have that confidence that, that you're, you know, 
<laughs> the, when when the API changes, you know it because you get type errors. Yeah, I mean, the, the, having the spec that's true to the implementation because it's driven by the implementation is, has been really a key to our success. And, and the whole reason, I think one of the large reasons that we can maintain such a small team working on console. So we open source uh, Oxide TS, which is the repo today, which has our, our code <laughs> generation and stuff in it. Shout out to that. That, that may be what I was subtweeting earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so from that open API spec, we generate a lot of things. We, of course, generate like an SDK that we can use to work uh, with the, the API itself, but also uh, this sort of mock server framework that we have. This actually generates the, the sort of wrapper, the like implementation wrapper for those, those mock functions. It's like, okay, well, what is this function? What does it take? What does it expect to return? And we even have like validators to ensure that the things that we're passing in and the things that we're returning from this like mock server are in this, the exact shape that we expect them to be in and you know they are the right format. So our mock server gives us a lot of stuff out of the box because we generate like 90% of what we need. And the rest of it is just, okay, let's do a little bit of logic to say, hey, yeah, you know, here's this list of, of VPCs. If we create a new VPC, stuff it in this list. Um, stuff like that where the logic that we have in the mock server is, is really minimal, which makes that maintaining that sort of, which is a duplicate implementation of, you know, what our control plane is doing to some degree, like a very lighter version of it. It makes that relatively trivial. And, and we have correctness guarantees that we can sort of rely on in a lot of ways. It's like maybe the logic isn't correct, but for a lot of the testing and development we do in console, that's totally fine. I just want to echo something you said, Justin, which was when the API changes, we get like a compile error in the front end. And I feel like that is great. And not everyone has that same philosophy, which I just don't understand. Right? Like I, I don't understand living in a world where you just press on in the face of incompatibility. But I, I think that that is very common. I mean, I can yeah, imagine there well, just being so many incompatibilities that you could never hope to fix them all. And then just knowing about one more is just like, you know, a fly buzzing around your head. And you just don't want to know about it. That's um, right. Yeah, maybe but, it's the benefit uh, of a clean sheet of paper here where yeah, we I, got I, to I, build the right zero. thing from scratch. I think that that is a big part of it. I mean, because I just think of like it, where, you know, mostly when the API, API changes, it's like, oh, actually, what I'd actually love to have is an undefined property exception, like deep in my stack. Like, that's how I'd love to actually do it. If I, could, I mean, I, I just feel that the, uh, it, and, and also, Adam, having generating the open API from the implementation, and Justin, you talking about like how what, that, I, that's actually really important because it means that the, the API spec actually is correct. And I feel that's, I mean, I got to believe that's not always the okay. case. I, I, I got to just to, on that point, I have brought this up a lot of times in open API circles. And I am Wait, viewed. Are you going to me right now? I have never. No, 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 no. I am viewed like a heretic. Like this, that, like that <laughs> idea that you would let people writing code define the spec implicitly is a type of like specification heresy. Because there's, there's this really, really strongly held belief. And, you, and it's not that surprising that people writing a spec, right? Like people who, whose output is this, you know, open API spec of the sort that you might find like a JSON schema spec, believe that the spec writers should be in charge, not the implementation authors uh, or, or those responsible for implementation. But Which is wild because the spec is not human writable, really. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> that might, too. It's very hard to read and write. 
Yes. So I would just say this is, I think that this is the only sane way to live, but there are people who really, really very strongly disagree with this and in fact feel like it is critical to have this separation, this almost check balance of powers, if you will, where you have one person writing the spec and one person writing the implementation and it's the spec that is true. And the thing that often gets lost is anything validating that the two have even a you know bearing passing resemblance of each other. Totally. Talk about like Conway's law and the the ramifications thereof. I mean that yeah, that's kind of crazy to me because it's like ultimately like what you I mean, David, you and Justin want is like I need to know what the implementation is actually doing. Like the and if the specification doesn't actually match the implementation to a degree, it's like the sorry, the implementation wins. <laughs> the implementation is actually the thing that you know. It's the implementation. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you well, get these APIs out there where you know the, uh, I bumped into this years ago with the Slack API a bunch, where what the open API document was out of date and wrong, and you'd file issues, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, we are going to do a new drop of that." And and to your point about Conway's law, it was a different team. It was the DevRel team responsible for maintaining that, which was different than the folks building the service. So it's not that surprising that it fell on the floor. Anyway, I'm done with my rant, at least for the moment. Oh, I mean, that so that points at a, um, something that we do in the mock server as well, which is like what Justin was describing, is we actually generate quite a bit of the implementation as well. Um, because, you know, obviously you can't generate the part where it, you know, inserts the thing into the mock database, but you can generate the validation. Right, that the same thing that the API does automatically when you you know tell it what type the request body is, it's going to validate uh, using Surti um, or JSON schema. Oh yeah, you, right. You know, on the way in, that the thing actually matches that type. We also do will do that because we have the shape um, and even some extra validation stuff like you know number ranges. We have that, um, and so what we do is we generate validators with this library called Zod that lets you take an object and you essentially try to parse the object with with uh, a shape. And if it fails, it fails. So, you know, we can 400 in the mock server for every endpoint. It has its parser up front. That part is generated. So we get that for free. And it's really only that little bit in the middle where it's like, you know, if I'm retrieving a list of projects, like set, return the list of projects. You know, we have this little core of the implementation, but keeping that part as small as possible, I think is, is, is in line with what you're saying about, you know, the implementation is, is really the, the, the truth there. Um, so we, that's why we, we want to we generate as much as we can and then define the boundary really, really carefully so that the, the part that we have to define manually is very um, easy to do. Um, but, you know, you, you couldn't generate that part. Yeah, that is really cool. And I think, and again, Justin, you would made this point earlier, but we've done, I mean, we've done a remarkable amount with a very small team. I mean, this is true, I feel like, across the board at Oxide, but it's, it is, it, every bit is true in this domain as it is in every domain at Oxide where we have had... Uh, very small number of people doing an enormous amount of work in part because you've been able to rely on tooling and automation and generation of of logic and code that is really pretty extraordinary and did you also describe what you um demoed on most recently on on friday with respect to these this kind of static yeah uh, that was crazy. so yeah, what's really neat about this mock server, it's implemented with this thing called mock service workers. So this is a little bit confusing because it's kind of backwards. So service workers are an API in the browser that lets you essentially run uh, a separate application in the in page. Um, but it runs, I, I think, in a separate thread from like the main, um, the main thread of, of the page. And you can have something that actually acts as a server and intercepts requests that your that your client sends. Um, 
So when you use mock service workers, the mock there is because you're doing that in Node because you're you're using, you know, it was originally invented for writing like essentially unit tests on the server side where you don't need to spin up a browser. In in our case, we're pretty much always just using it in the browser. So because this uh, mock API is able to run in a service worker, we can deploy the actual front end, the, you know, the JavaScript and HTML um, as static assets, along with the mock server implementation also as static assets, and it all just runs in your browser. So what I demoed on, uh, um, on Friday was um, we're able to get preview deploys of every commit in our, in our repo, which with, you know, functioning app, but it's deployed as a static site because it's the front end is static and the back end is also a static file that the JavaScript that runs in your browser. Um, I mean, th this is so wild. This is, is as, so you can test every front end commit, every feature, every bug fix, as though you were talking to this enormous, you know, 32 CPU, seven foot tall, 15 KW rack and get sort of a similar or, or, or close enough user experience, which is just awesome. Yeah. And it, I mean, it relies on being very judicious about, you know, the fidelity of the mock, right? Because sure, you can have right. too, too, you know, too flimsy of a mock and you're not really testing the real thing, but too complicated of a mock and you are constantly bogged down fixing it when it gets, when it starts to diverge. So we, we've, we give a lot of attention to, to getting that balance exactly right so that we're not feeling, you know, trapped by all this code that we have. Um, and like, you know, like I was saying, generating as much of it as possible. So we don't even have to make that decision. It's just, that's just the way it works. And we know that it matches the, uh, the real thing. And could you describe what you did in terms of like pulling some fraction of data from the actual API? And it was like half mocked. Oh, I know, I know I'm, I'm sounding like this. I'm, I'm recounting a dream. Oh, now. that's a different one. So that's a different demo. <laughs> right. But um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's actually not using the mock API, just because our um, the way our front end is implemented is just like a pure um, web app that runs in the browser. It doesn't really care what the API is. So, if we um, proxy requests uh, through to you know the real um, API running on the rack, you can run the app in sort of like local dev mode um, in your browser, where you know you save a file and it changes live. Um, but the API you're talking to is like the actual API of the rack. So, you know, there's a lot of situations where the data um, that you're testing against, it's really hard to get realistic mock data. So, for example, metrics is really hard to come up with stuff that really covers the, the way that real metrics look. Um, and, and other things, you know, obviously your mocks are never going to really cover every um, real world case. So when we run into bugs in the, in the uh, rack, we can actually point our local server we can do local dev, but just pointing at the at the real API, and you know it's just a different command to start it up. You know it's it's a it's a one liner uh, difference when you uh, when you start up the dev server, whether you're pointing at the mock API or a locally running copy of Nexus, which we also do, or you know uh, a remote API running on the rack. Yeah, I just thought that was amazing, and I just I love these kind of two together because they're kind of two different points on a spectrum where it's like, look, we can. Some stuff is fully mockable and it's great. And we can like, and then for, oh, by the way, for the stuff that's fully mockable, like, why don't you have this in your Vercel preview of the PR, which Adam, as you said, it's just like mind bending that you're actually like, I'm like interacting with a pull, like how am I, what? <laughs> like you can actually pull up the static site and you're interacting with the PR as part of like looking at it or what have you. And then for the, as you say, Dave, for the stuff that, that then there's certain stuff that's like just not as amenable to mocking or what have you. And then you can actually get this hybrid deployment where you're in this developer mode but pulling actual data from the, the real API. I mean, just like, I just love all the different points here in terms of all kind of pointing to 
how do we develop this thing quickly and robustly, which is what you, and, and I got to say like also just the actual artifact is so crazy snappy. It is so great. Uh, yeah, we'll have to link a video or, uh, you know, some kind of demo. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, these points are, are really, you know, mutually reinforcing because the, the, the entire reason that we can draw that clean line between the front end and the back end is because of that open API spec. Like it really all comes down to that clean, clearly, you know, formally computer uh, readably defined boundary um, being being the line between the, the client and the and the server. And like it, that doesn't mean, you know, it's funny because one way that happens is like a Conway's law thing where your 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 front end devs are one group and your back end devs are another group and you'll define the line really, really strongly just because those people don't talk to each other. But in our case, that's not really true. We do we work on both sides of the boundary, but so it's like we gave ourselves a really clean boundary to then still work on both sides of. And that's been really, really useful. Yeah, I think that's it's really, really important, important to talk yeah. about the the API philosophy here. The the real thing is like or the product philosophy. The, the real thing is the API is the product, right? That, yeah. That's the closest thing to the rack. That is that is the realest sense of the word. And whether you're working in console, whether you're working in a CLI, whether you're working in any of the SDKs, it should all feel internally congruent. It should feel like the same product. And, and we've put a lot of work into making sure that that is true and the case, right? So it's like, oh, well, I, I hit the API and I can kind of see how this is structured and, and the language it uses and where it's like organized and you'll find that mirrored everywhere. So, um, you know, something with console is, it's not a rich application so much as it is a sort of reformatted view of the API. And, and we do it to make it user-friendly and, and do what we can to, to help, but like, I mean, console does so little uh, by design, you know, both for maintainability and for the fact that, like, we, any serious functionality that we handle, we want to push that down into the API. And, you know, we've had some tensions internally where we think about, like, oh, maybe we can do that just client side. And, you know, this is a, this is a thing that I feel really strongly about is, like, if we expose product functionality, by and large, where it makes sense, you know, we have to make trade-offs sometimes, but as much as we can, we try to make that a rich API versus, you know, we'll just do it client-side. Um, yeah, well, and it's, I mean, the API is the product, I mean, it, the, which is absolutely true. Bullseye, not something you would expect to hear from a computer company, I think, but it's absolutely uh, true. Not one that's not AWS, I guess, right? Yeah, right, that, I yeah, think, exactly. And yeah. in fact, I mean, I, I, I think, Whatever you say, AWS is obviously complicated. Uh, I feel like that I can stand by that bold claim. But <laughs> so but AWS, the, we're putting AWS and World War II on equal footing there, or is that the, <laughs> no, World War II was stressful? I guess AWS stressful. is stressful World too. Is stressful. Okay, well, I think they're both right. stressful and complicated. Okay, <laughs> so there we go. Let's split the baby, right? But uh, you, the philosophy of everything is an API. It's like yeah, yeah that's that's spot on, right? You, you nailed it. Well, and then just all that stems from that, like why that is so important. Because I mean, everything that you can do in the in the console, you can also do in the COI. You can also do directly in the API. And then we can also, I just love all the things that have been done of like, oh, do you want to do this thing? Do you want to do this on the on the CLI? Here's the CLI invocation for this. Do you want to talk to the about also the overlap? I feel like documentation also comes in here as well um, and in terms of like how we 
are, how we kind of document the pro- I mean, say the API is the product, and kind of how the API that, that we we end up with a with a with a, a locus for documentation as well. Who's that pointed to? <laughs> yes, silence. I don't know. The, the, uh, yeah. Well, one thing is we um, we do all of our documentation in line in the code, and this is another one of like Dropshot's opinionated takes. Um, and this is maybe a bit of a cynical one, but what I've observed, and I don't think this takes, you know, there's too deep of an insight is like that people writing code aren't good at remembering to update the documentation, especially if it's all the way in some other file that you have to remember to open. All the way, right? It's no, right. I mean, this other window, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Or maybe it's not, yeah, exactly. It's like in Markdown or ASCII doc, but I'm yeah. writing some Rust code. So we just take the Rust docs and we make that the documentation. And it's bitten us in some ways. And sometimes you can sort of forget that you're writing user-facing documentation and start yammering about internal implementation details rather than explaining to the user what the API is. But it is sort of up there. You know, it, it's right there in your face. And when you generate the docs, you, you see it in the JSON description and so forth. So try to put the, the, you know, the things that we, the developers of the API, have to say about the API as close to it as possible. Yeah. So that whether you're the one right changing the code, or often if you're the code reviewer who's taking a fresh look and saying, "Hey, the thing above says it goes left, but the code below says it goes right," it makes it a lot easier to keep those things in sync, or a lot harder for them to fall out of sync. And then that yeah. gets propagated right. with in, in work that David and Justin have done, you know, everywhere, including in our docs website. And uh, David's dropped the link into the to docs.oxide.computer, but you can allow anyone to see the, that documentation, which is all effectively generated from the implementation ultimately. Yeah, and the CLI docs as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's right. We'd be remiss in our duties here if we also didn't give a shout out to Ben and Eugene, our designers, who totally. have touched every part of our product, be it Truly. docs or console, you know, industrial design, our internal RFD site, literally everything. E- even the marketing even site going, that everyone loves. Yeah, Wicket. Stickers, like, your Oxide friends Wicket. stickers. <laughs> yeah, so they're amazing and they do everything, which, yeah, so props to them for sure. Well, and props to the, and also just like their uh, disposition is very much a a a cross disciplinary, versatile disposition. I mean, part of what I love about just everyone is like everyone's everyone views the whole thing as part of their job. So it's like we don't because I think that these Conway law Conway's law problems are real problems, and they are, the problem is they show seams to the, the the user like you can see like where the, these <laughs> i mean i feel like with so many google products like oh i get it rifle organizations you do hate one of those guts i gotcha yeah can you please i just hope just can we just make sure that we don't all kill one another at the same time um and uh so we can at least have one of these products uh, but we so i think it's really important that you got that that and i think yeah just to your point Ben and Eugene have done a great job of, of stitching in across the, the the console and the and the API and the docs and so on. It's been really terrific. Yeah, we don't have enough people to build silos. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's right. That's it. That is actually, boy, I mean, that is it. And like, boy, if there's 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 a real value to that about uh, not having because 
when you do have enough people to grow silos, like the silos become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and it can be really problematic. And then it becomes really difficult to uh, actually develop something that feels coherent. Um, and boy, this is what you all have really pulled off. It's just been remarkable. I, David, there's a, a question in the chat about can folks see a, a, a look at like, what does this thing actually look like? This, <laughs> I didn't have... Yeah, so let me post, I'll post a screenshot and then uh, when we open source the console, anybody will be able to just NPM install and you know NPM run dev and, and run it locally with the mock API. Um, and you know we'll be able to actually link, you know, get a link to our our live demo that I was talking about, as well. So you'll be able to see it um, pretty easily. That is great, and very excited to uh, to get this out there, to get this open. So it's going to be um, people will be able to see exactly all the the, the stuff that you built and the the kind of the tooling and and how we're doing it. And I think that there's some real lessons there for other folks that that are uh, not building a computer company, but uh, in particular the, um, the 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 API primacy, I think is really interesting. And Adam and I, just in hindsight, that was just a really important dimension to what we were, I mean, it, the, the, an important thrust was that that kind of API centrism, which we, again, we knew, I did, we didn't really doubt it, but boy, seeing, I, I think uh, it is surprising how many ramifications there are of it. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really pleased with how that worked out. And you're right, not, not wholly surprising, but I think it would have been easy at the time in those early days to say, because we had, a, a, like a handcrafted, uh, you know, YAML file of the API. Like this is yeah. how we got early feedback on the API. And it might have been easy to say, okay, well, that's the the Open API spec. Now let's go build the implementation against that. And it would have been sort of fraught in all the ways that that um, you know building these APIs can be fraught. So it's, it's it's worked out very nicely. And we're even generating the CLI by and large from that API spec. So it's um it's been pretty neat. That is really neat. And yeah, it would have been easy. That's what I mean. It's like it would have been one of these things that it would have been easy. You can see how companies drift into this where totally. things are the are out of sync. And then all of these kind of knock-on effects of having them out of sync. It's like, well, now we actually can't actually use it to auto-generate the client-side validation. Sure. Because and, the, well, and, and easy to see, because when you start writing it, you're like, well, we don't Kind of either we say we start from the spec and we try to conform to it, or more often you just say we don't really need a spec for the first, you know, two dozen lines of Probably. code we write. We don't we don't have yeah. a client. The client is curl. You know, we're not writing the TypeScript yet. So just can we all chill out a little bit? But then as soon as you do that, it's like really hard to go back and kind of stuff the genie back into the bottle on these things, or or you know, it's, it becomes a heroic undertaking to document it and then maintain it and so forth. So. Uh, you know, much much easier as we've alluded to from a clean sheet of paper. It really is, and boys, it's it just it's just amazing to see what you all built. Um, and great job, David and Justin. Yeah. Really terrific, terrific stuff. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, David. I, I know you've got a uh, a negotiated truce with a four year old. Um, yeah, we, <laughs> correct. We all know that that four year olds don't want to honor their treaties. Um, <laughs> That's right. They really dictate the schedule of the show. We've, we've, we've <laughs> learned over the years. Uh, so we'll let you get back to it with, with a huge thanks to to uh, and our apologies for cutting into your family time. Um, no problem. Adam, good luck resolving your uh, your labor dispute with the camp, or or, or, or just, uh, just yeah, just yeah. good luck at large. I'm I'm, I'm so Sorry. sorry. We can't, I, I know you want this podcast to go on forever, so you don't actually have to go. <laughs> but, like, uh, no, I had a visitor halfway through who, who who wanted to get on the show, but made him made him get a Discord account just like everybody else. <laughs>
There you go. And he's like, what do you mean? I, what do you mean? I, I, I can't be known as a numeral anymore. What do you mean? <laughs> well, thank you very much. Terrific discussion and really, really, really interesting stuff. And again, great work. Really exciting to see. Thanks for having us. All right. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.